Mark chapter 15 details the crucifixion of Jesus. He's been silent before his accusers, who've pressured the Roman governor into having Jesus crucified. Now, while this chapter looks like a complete defeat, it's actually full of irony that presents Jesus' death as the ultimate victory. Now, before Jesus makes it to the cross, we're told about a custom that Pilate, the Roman governor, had. Starting in verse 6, at the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. Now, Pilate's hoping that the crowd is going to ask for Jesus, but the chief priests stir that crowd up to ask for a man named Barabbas instead. Now, there are a number of interesting parallels between Jesus and this man. First, Barabbas means son of the father, Bar-Ava, exactly who Jesus claims to be, but nobody else gets to recognize. We're also told that Barabbas was an insurrectionist, meaning he led violent revolts against Rome in hopes of liberating his people. Also, similar to Jesus' mission to free us from sin. But this is the Messiah that the people wanted. They wanted someone who was going to lead the charge against Rome and the Gentiles with the sword. And instead they got Jesus, the one who died on behalf of them. And so, because they wanted this Messiah, they send the real Messiah to the cross. But before Jesus gets there, he has to endure the torture and humiliation of the Romans. In verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on after him. So first, Jesus is flogged. The Romans, they would have tied Jesus to a post and whipped him with what was called a cat of nine tails. It was a whip studded with sharp pieces of bone, glass, or metal, and they would beat him with it. And as they did, it would have torn his skin and ripped it off of him in chunks. It was common for victims to die from blood loss before ever making it to the cross. And then afterwards, he has to endure the continued beatings and mockings of the soldiers. He's given a purple robe, a crown of thorns, and saluted as king of the Jews. And then they spit on him and ridicule him with their mocking worship. Now, after all that was said and done, Jesus would have to carry his own cross to the hill where he'd be executed. Now, to the eyes of the Romans and the Jews, this was a humiliating defeat. Yet all of this ironically points to Jesus' kingship. You see, when Roman generals conquered their enemies in a heroic fashion, they would be rewarded with what was called a triumph. It was a public honor given to them in front of the entire city of Rome where they would go parade through the streets. Jesus' crucifixion, that's his triumph. He has the entire battalion with him, as the Roman general would. He's arrayed in purple, the color of royalty. Instead of a laurel wreath, he's given a crown of thorns. And the Roman general, he would parade through the streets leading to the Capitoline Hill, the palace in Rome. Jesus is paraded through the streets to Golgotha, the place of the skull. Now, when the Roman general reached the Capitoline Hill, he would stand with his close commanders. Jesus is crucified with two criminals. James and John asked to sit on the right and left hand of Jesus in his glory. Well, here it is. This is his triumph. Now, after Jesus is crucified, we have some strange things happening. First, we have darkness come over the land from about noon to about three. Second, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And third, the temple curtain is torn in two. 
Now, a very common interpretation of these events is that God is turning his face away from his son, forsaking and leaving him to the torments of death. And I want to stress how incredibly wrong all of that is. There is absolutely no indication that God is turning his face away. It's just what people have assumed is happening when it grows dark. But there's a much better interpretation if we have Amos chapter 8 in mind. In Amos chapter 8, God is declaring disaster for his people for all the wickedness they've committed. And so he promises a day of judgment. And in Amos 8, 9 through 10, he says, In that day, this is the declaration of the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the land in the daytime. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will cause everyone to wear sackcloth and every head to be shaved. I will make that grief like mourning for an only son and its outcome like a bitter day. You see, God isn't turning his face away from Jesus. He's mourning him, his only son that was rejected and murdered. But what about verse 34? In verse 34, and at 3, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, Jesus is not asking God a question. He's quoting scripture, specifically from Psalm 22, verse 1, which reads, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? And Psalm 22 has a lot of different parallels with Jesus' death. It's worth reading the entire thing. It speaks of the psalmist being mocked and sneered at. And we have the chief priest and the scribes asking Jesus, why can't he save himself? Well, the psalmist's enemies ask why God won't deliver him in verse 8. In Psalm twenty-two sixteen, we read, Dogs have surrounded me, a gang of evildoers has closed in on me, and they pierced my hands and my feet, just like they would have at a crucifixion. And in verse 18, they divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing just as the Roman soldiers have done with Jesus. And so there really are just too many parallels to Psalm 22 to ignore. And we need to keep the entirety of that psalm in mind. It starts off questioning God, why have you forsaken me? But in verse 21, there's a sudden shift. You answered me. Continuing in verse 22, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the assembly. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him. For he has not despised or abhorred the torment of the oppressed. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. Psalm 22 starts off dark, but has a complete reversal. And by the end, it's singing the praises of God to future generations. So when Jesus quotes this psalm to his enemies, he's not saying, I've been abandoned by God. He says, it looks like I've been abandoned by God. But just you wait. God is going to turn things around. I've just won. Finally, the curtain of the temple is split in half from top to bottom. With the death of Jesus, the way to God has been opened, and we have access to God through his sacrifice. So no, Jesus was not forsaken. God did not turn his face away. This was the crowning moment of Jesus' life. This was the moment that indisputably declared him as the Son of God. In verse 39, when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. The miracles and teachings of Jesus were only half the picture for us. 
Jesus proved himself as the Son of God when he died on the cross. Jesus proved his love and loyalty to his Father by willingly journeying to the cross. And why would God ever turn his face from such selfless love?